Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road. This is your host, John Hagedorn, and today we cover chapters 7 and 8 of The 39 Steps by John Buchan. Chapter 7, The Dry Fly Fisherman I sat down on a hilltop and took stock of my position. I wasn't feeling very happy, for my natural thankfulness at my escape was clouded by my severe bodily discomfort. Those lentonite fumes had fairly poisoned me, and the baking hours on the dovecot hadn't helped matters. I had a crushing headache and felt as sick as a cat. Also, my shoulder was in a bad way. At first I thought it was only a bruise, but it seemed to be swelling, and I had no use of my left arm. My plan was to seek Mr. Turnbull's cottage, recover my garments, and especially Scudder's notebook, and then make for the main line and get back to the south. It seemed to me that the sooner I got in touch with the foreign office man, Sir Walter Bullivant, the better. I didn't see how I could get more proof than I'd got already. He must just take or leave my story, and anyway, with him I would be in better hands than those devilish Germans. I had begun to feel quite kindly towards the British police. It was a wonderful starry night, and I had not much difficulty about the road. Sir Harry's map had given me the lie of the land, and all I had to do was steer a point or two west of southwest to come to the stream where I had met the roadman. In all these travels I never knew the names of the places, but I believed this stream was no less than the upper waters of the River Tweed. I calculated I must be about eighteen miles distant, and that meant I could not get there before morning, so I must lie up a day somewhere where I was too outrageous a figure to be seen in the sunlight. I had neither coat, waistcoat, collar, nor hat. My trousers were badly torn, and my face and hands were black with the explosion. I dare say I had other beauties, for my eyes felt as though they were furiously bloodshot. Altogether I was no spectacle for God-fearing citizens to see on a high road. Very soon after daybreak I made an attempt to clean myself in a hill burn, and then approached a herd's cottage, for I was feeling the need of food. The herd was away from home, and his wife was alone, with no neighbor for five miles. She was a decent old body, and a plucky one, for though she got a fright when she saw me, she had an axe handy, and would have used it on any evil doer. I told her that I had had a fall, I didn't say how, and she saw by my looks that I was pretty sick. Like a true Samaritan, she asked no questions, but gave me a bowl of milk with a dash of whiskey in it, and let me sit for a little by her kitchen fire. She would have bathed my shoulder, but it ached so badly that I wouldn't let her touch it. I don't know what she took me for. A repentant burglar, perhaps? For when I wanted to pay her for the milk and tendered a sovereign, which was the smallest coin I had, she shook her head and said something about giving it to them that had a right to it. At this I protested so strongly that I think she believed me honest, for she took the money and gave me a warm new plaid for it and an old hat of her man's. She showed me how to wrap the plaid around my shoulders, and when I left that cottage I was the living image of the kind of Scotsman you see in the illustrations to Burns' poems. But at any rate, I was more or less clad. It was as well, for the weather changed before midday to a thick drizzle of rain. I found shelter below an overhanging rock in the crook of a burn, where a drift of dead brackens made a tolerable bed. There I managed to sleep till nightfall, waking very cramped and wretched, 
with my shoulder gnawing like a toothache. I ate the oat cake and cheese the old wife had given me, and set out again just before the darkening. I pass over the miseries of that night among the wet hills. There were no stars to steer by, and I had to do the best I could for my memory of the map. Twice I lost my way, and I had some nasty falls into peat bogs. I had only about ten miles to go as the crow flies, but my mistakes made it nearer twenty. The last bit was completed with set teeth and a very light and dizzy head. But I managed it, and in the early dawn I was knocking at Mr. Turnbull's door. The mist lay close and thick, and from the cottage I could not see the high road. Mr. Turnbull himself opened to me, sober and something more than sober. He was primly dressed in an ancient but well-tended suit of black. He had been shaved not later than the night before. He wore a linen collar, and in his left hand he carried a pocket Bible. At first he didn't recognize me. "'Why are you that come stravaging here on the Sabbath morning?' he asked. I had lost all account of the days, so the Sabbath was the reason for this strange decorum. My head was swimming so wildly that I could not frame a coherent answer. But he recognized me, and he saw that I was ill. "'Had you got my specs?' he asked. I fetched them out of my trouser pocket and gave him them. "'You'll have come for your jacket and waistcoat,' he said. "'Come in, by. "'Lush, man, you're terrible doing in the legs. "'Hand up till I get you a chair.' "'I perceived I was in for a bout of malaria. "'I had a good deal of fever in my bones, "'and the wet night had brought it out, "'while my shoulder and the effects of the fumes "'combined to make me feel pretty bad. "'Before I knew, Mr. Turnbull was helping me off with my clothes "'and putting me to bed in one of the two cupboards "'that lined the kitchen walls. "'He was a true friend in need,' that old roadman. His wife was dead years ago, and since his daughter's marriage, he lived alone. For the better part of ten days, he did all the rough nursing I needed. I simply wanted to be left in peace while the fever took its course, and when my skin was cool again, I found that the bout had more or less cured my shoulder. But it was a baddish go, and though I was out of bed in five days, it took me some time to get my legs again. He went out each morning, leaving me milk for the day, and locking the door behind him, and came in in the evening to sit silent in the chimney corner. Not a soul came near the place. When I was getting better, he never bothered me with a question. Several times he fetched me a two-days-old Scotsman, and I noticed that the interest in the Portland Place murder seemed to have died down. There was no mention of it, and I could find very little about anything except a thing called the General Assembly." "'some ecclesiastical spree I gathered. "'One day he produced my belt from a lockfast drawer. "'There's a terrible heap of silver in it,' he said. "'You'd better count it to see that it's there.' "'He never even sought my name. "'I asked him if anybody had been around making inquiries "'subsequent to my spell at the road-making. "'Aye, there was a man in a motor-car. "'He questioned what had taken place that day, "'and I let on I thought him daft.' "'But he keep it on me, "'and he said he mun be thinking about me good brother "'who had lent me a hand. "'He was a worse-looking soul, "'and I could not understand a half of his English tongue. "'I was getting restless those last days, "'and as soon as I felt myself fit, "'I decided to be off. "'That was not till the twelfth day of June, "'and as luck would have it, "'a drover went past that morning "'taking some cattle to Moffat. 
He was a man called Hislop, a friend of Turnbull's, and he came into his breakfast with us and offered to take me with him. I made Turnbull accept five pounds for my lodging, and a hard job I had of it. There never was a more independent being. He grew positively rude when I pressed him, and shy and red, and took the money at last without a thank you. When I told him how much I owed him, he grunted something about, "'One good tenon deserves another.' "'You'd have thought from our leave-taking "'that we'd parted in disgust.' "'Hislop was a cheery soul "'who chattered all the way over the pass "'and down the sunny vale of Annan. "'I talked of Galloway markets and sheep prices, "'and he made up his mind "'I was a pack-shepherd from those parts, "'whatever that may be. "'My plaid and my old hat, as I've said, "'gave me a fine theatrical Scots look. "'But driving cattle is a mortally slow job, "'and we took the better part of the day "'to cover a dozen miles.' If I had not such an anxious heart, I would have enjoyed that time. It was shining blue weather, with a constantly changing prospect of brown hills and fat green meadows, and a continual sound of larks and curlews and falling streams. But I had no mind for the summer, and little for his lop's conversation, for as the fateful 15th of June drew near, I was overweighed with the hopeless difficulties of my enterprise. I got some dinner in a humble Moffat public house, and walked the two miles to the junction on the main line. The night express for the south was not due till near midnight, and to fill up the time I went up on the hillside and fell asleep, for the walk had tired me. I all but slept too long, and had to run to the station and catch the train with two minutes to spare. The feel of the hard third-class cushions and the smell of stale tobacco cheered me up wonderfully. At any rate, I felt now that I was getting to grips with my job. I was decanted at Crewe in the small hours and had to wait till six to get a train for Birmingham. In the afternoon I got to Reading and changed into a local train which journeyed me into the deeps of Berkshire. Presently I was in a land of lush water meadows and slow reedy streams. About eight o'clock in the evening a weary and travel-stained being, a cross between a farm laborer and a vet, with a checked black-and-white plaid over his arm, for I did not care to wear it south of the border, "'descended at the little station of Artenswell. "'There were several people on the platform, "'and I thought I'd better wait to ask my way "'till I was clear of the place. "'The road led through a wood of great beeches "'and then into a shallow valley, "'and the green backs of downs "'peeping over the distant trees were all I saw. "'After Scotland, the air smelt heavy and flat, "'but infinitely sweet, "'for the limes and chestnuts and lilac bushes "'were domes of blossom.' Presently I came to a bridge, below which a clear, slow stream flowed between snowy beds of water buttercups. A little above it was a mill, and the lasher made a pleasant cool sound in the scented dusk. Somehow the place soothed me and put me at my ease. I fell to whistling as I looked into the green depths, and the tune which came to my lips was Annie Laurie. A fisherman came up from the waterside, and as he neared me he too began to whistle. The tune was infectious, for he followed my suit. He was a huge man in untidy old flannels and a wide-brimmed hat, with a canvas bag slung on his shoulder. He nodded to me, and I thought I'd never seen a shrewder or better-tempered face. He leaned his delicate ten-foot split cane rod against the bridge, and looked with me at the water. "'Clear, isn't it?' he said pleasantly. 
"'I back our carrot any day against the test. "'Look at that big fellow. Four pounds if he's an ounce. "'But the evening rises over, and you can't tempt him.' "'I don't see him,' said I. "'Look, there, a yard from the reeds, just above that stickle.' "'Ah, I've got him now. "'You might swear he was a black stone.' "'So,' he said, and whistled another bar of Annie Laurie. "'Twisden's the name, isn't it?' he said over his shoulder, his eyes still fixed on the stream. "'No,' I said. "'I mean to say, yes. I had forgotten all about my alias. "'It's a wise conspirator that knows his own name,' he observed, grinning broadly at a moorhen that emerged from the bridge's shadow. I stood up and looked at him, at the square cleft jaw and broad-lined brow and the firm folds of cheek and began to think that here at last was an ally worth having. His whimsical blue eyes seemed to go very deep. Suddenly he frowned. "'I call it disgraceful,' he said, raising his voice. "'Disgraceful that an able-bodied man like you should dare to beg. You can get a meal from my kitchen, but you'll get no money from me.' A dog-cart was passing, driven by a young man who raised his whip to salute the fisherman. When he had gone... "'He picked up his rod. "'That's my house,' he said, "'pointing to a white gate a hundred yards on. "'Wait five minutes, and then go round to the back door.' "'And with that, he left me. "'I did as I was bidden. "'I found a pretty cottage with a lawn running down to the stream, "'and a perfect jungle of gilder rose and lilac flanking the path. "'The back door stood open, and a grave butler was awaiting me. "'Come this way, sir.' he said, and led me along a passage and up a back staircase to a pleasant bedroom looking towards the river. There I found a complete outfit laid out for me, dress clothes with all the fixings, a brown flannel suit, shirts, collars, ties, shaving things, and hairbrushes, even a pair of patent shoes. "'Sir Walter thought as how Mr. Reggie's things would fit you, sir,' said the butler. "'He keeps some clothes here, for he comes regular on the weekends.' "'There's a bathroom next door, and I prepare a hot bath. "'Dinner in half an hour, sir. You'll hear the gong.' "'The grave being withdrew, and I sat down in a chintz-covered easy-chair and gaped. "'It was like a pantomime to come suddenly out of beggardom into this orderly comfort. "'Obviously Sir Walter believed in me, though why he did I could not guess. "'I looked at myself in the mirror and saw a wild, haggard brown fellow, with a fortnight's ragged beard and dust in the ears and eyes, collarless, vulgarly shirted, with shapeless old tweed clothes and boots that had not been clean for the better part of a month. I made a fine tramp and a fair drover, and here I was ushered by a prim butler into this temple of gracious ease, and the best of it was that they didn't even know my name. I resolved not to puzzle my head, but to take the gifts the God had provided. I shaved and bathed luxuriously and got into the dress clothes and clean crackling shirt, which fitted me not so badly. By the time I'd finished, the looking-glass showed a not unpersonable young man. We'll return to our show right after this message from our sponsors. And now, back to our show. Sir Walter awaited me in a dusky dining-room where a little round table was lit with silver candles. The sight of him... "'so respectable and established and secure, 
the embodiment of law and government and all those conventions, took me aback and made me feel an interloper. He couldn't know the truth about me, or he wouldn't treat me like this. I simply could not accept this hospitality on false pretenses. "'I'm more obliged to you than I can say, but I'm bound to make things clear,' I said. "'I am an innocent man, but I'm wanted by the police. I've got to tell you this, and I won't be surprised if you kick me out.' He smiled. "'That's all right. Don't let that interfere with your appetite. We can talk about these things after dinner.' I never ate a meal with greater relish, for I had had nothing all day but railway sandwiches. Sir Walter did me proud, for we drank a good champagne and had some uncommon fine port afterwards. It made me almost hysterical to be sitting there, waited on by a footman and a sleek butler, and remember that I'd been living for three weeks like a brigand, with every man's hand against me. I told Sir Walter about tigerfish and the Zambezi that bite off your fingers, if you give them a chance, and we discussed sport up and down the globe, for he had hunted a bit in his day. We went to his study for coffee, a jolly room full of books and trophies and untidiness and comfort. I made up my mind that if ever I got rid of this business and had a house of my own, I would create just such a room. Then when the coffee cups were cleared away and we had got our cigars alight, my host swung his long legs over the side of his chair and bade me get started with my yarn. "'I've obeyed Hetty's instructions,' he said, "'and the bribe be offered me "'was that you would tell me something to wake me up. "'I'm ready, Mr. Hetty.' "'I noticed with a start "'that he called me by my proper name. "'I began at the very beginning. "'I told of my boredom in London, "'and the night I'd come back to find Scudder "'gibbering on my doorstep. "'I told him all Scudder had told me "'about Carolitas and the Foreign Office Conference.' and that made him purse his lips and grin. Then I got to the murder, and he grew solemn again. He heard all about the milkman and my time in Galloway, and my deciphering Scudder's notes at the inn. "'You've got them here?' he asked sharply, and drew a long breath when I whipped a little book from my pocket. I said nothing of the contents. Then I described my meeting with Sir Harry and the speeches at the hall. And at that he laughed uproariously. "'So Harry talked dashed nonsense, did he? "'I quite believe in it. "'He's as good a chap as ever breathed, "'but his idiot of an uncle has stuffed his head with maggots. "'Go on, Mr. Henney.' "'My day as roadman excited him a bit. "'He made me describe the two fellows in the car very closely "'and seemed to be raking back in his memory. "'He heard Mary again when he heard of the fate of that ass Jopley. "'But the old man in the Moreland house solemnized him. Again I had to describe every detail of his appearance. "'Bland and bald-headed and hooded his eyes like a bird. He sounds a sinister wildfowl. And you dynamited his hermitage, and after he had saved you from the police. Spirited piece of work, that.' Presently I reached the end of my wanderings. He got up slowly and looked down at me from the hearthrug. "'You may dismiss the police from your mind.' he said. You're in no danger from the law of this land. Great Scott, I cried. Have they got the murderer? No, but for the last fortnight they've dropped you from the list of possibles. Why? I asked in amazement. 
principally because I received a letter from Scudder. I knew something of the man, and he did several jobs for me. He was half crank, half genius, but he was wholly honest. The trouble about him was his partiality for playing a lone hand. That made him pretty well useless in any secret service. A pity, for he had uncommon gifts. I think he was the bravest man in the world, for he was always shivering with fright, and yet nothing could choke him off. I had a letter from him on the 31st of May. But he'd been dead a week by then. Now the letter was written and posted on the 23rd. He evidently did not anticipate an immediate decease. His communications usually took a week to reach me, for they were sent under cover to Spain and then to Newcastle. He had a mania, you know, for concealing his tracks. What did he say? I stammered. Nothing. Merely that he was in danger, but had found shelter with a good friend, and that I would hear from him before the 15th of June. He gave me no address, but said he was living near Portland Place. I think his object was to clear you if anything happened. When I got it, I went to Scotland Yard, went over the details of the inquest, and concluded that you were the friend. We made inquiries about you, Mr. Hannay, and found you were respectable. I thought I knew the motives for your disappearance, not only the police, the other one too. And when I got Harry's scrawl, I guessed at the rest. I've been expecting you any time this past week. You can imagine what a load this took off my mind. I felt a free man once more, for I was now up against my country's enemies only, and not my country's law. Now, let us have the little notebook, said Sir Walter. It took us a good hour to work through it. I explained the cipher, and he was jolly quick at picking it up. He emended my reading of it on several points, but I'd been fairly correct on the whole. His face was very grave before he had finished, and he sat silent for a while. I didn't know what to make of it, he said at last. He is right about one thing. What is going to happen the day after tomorrow? How the devil can it have got known? That is ugly enough in itself. But all this about war and the black stone? It reads like some wild melodrama. If only I had more confidence in Scudder's judgment. The trouble about him was that he was too romantic. He had the artistic temperament and wanted a story to be better than God meant it to be. He had a lot of old biases, too. Jews, for example, made him see red. Jews and the high finance. The Black Stone, he repeated. Der Schwarzstein. It looks like a penny novelette. And all this stuff about Carolitis. That is the weak part of the tale. But I happen to know that the virtuous Carolitis is likely to outlast us both. There is no state in Europe that wants him gone. Besides, he's just been playing up to Berlin and Vienna on giving my chief some uneasy moments. No, Scudder has gone off the track there. Finally, Hanny, I don't believe that part of his story. There's some nasty business afoot, and he found out too much and lost his life over it. But I am ready to take my oath that his ordinary spy work. A certain great European power makes a hobby of her spy system, and her methods are not too particular. Since she pays by piecework, 
"'Her blackguards are not likely to stick at a murder or two. "'They want our naval dispositions for their collection at the marinement, "'but they will be pigeonholed. Nothing more.' "'Just then the butler entered the room. "'There's a trunk call from London,' said Walter. "'It's Mr. Heath, and he wants to speak to you personally.' "'My host went off to the telephone. "'He returned in five minutes, with a whitish face.' "'I apologize to the shade of Scudder,' he said. "'Carolidus was shot dead this evening at a few minutes after seven. "'We'll return to Chapter 8, right after this message from our sponsor.'" Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. And now we return to our show. Chapter 8. The Coming of the Black Stone I came down to breakfast next morning, after eight hours of blessed, dreamless sleep, to find Sir Walter decoding a telegram in the midst of muffins and marmalade. His fresh rosiness of yesterday seemed a thought tarnished. "'I had a busy hour on the telephone after you went to bed,' he said. "'I got my chief to speak to the First Lord and the Secretary for War, and they're bringing Royer over a day sooner.' This wire clinches it. He'll be in London at five. Odd that code word for a sous chef d'état, Major General, should be porker. He directed me to the hot dishes and went on. Not that I think it'll do much good. If your friends were clever enough to find out the first arrangement, they're clever enough to discover the change. I would give my head to know where the leak is. "'We believe there are only five men in England "'who knew about Royer's visit, "'and you may be certain there were fewer in France, "'for they managed these things better there.' "'While I ate, he continued to talk, "'making me, to my surprise, "'a present of his full confidence. "'Can the dispositions not be changed?' "'I asked. "'They could,' he said, "'but we want to avoid that if possible. "'They are the result of immense thought.' and no alteration would be as good. Besides, on one or two points, change is simply impossible. Still, something could be done, I suppose, if it were absolutely necessary. But you see the difficulty, Annie. Our enemies are not going to be such fools as to pick Royer's pocket, or any childish game like that. They know that would mean a row, and put us on our guard. Their aim is to get the details without any one of us knowing." so that Royer will go back to Paris in the belief that the whole business is still deadly secret. If they can't do that, they fail, for once we suspect, they know that the whole thing must be altered. Then we must stick by the Frenchman's side till he's home again, I said. 
"'If they thought they could get the information in Paris, "'they would try there. "'It means that they have some deep scheme on foot in London, "'which they reckon is going to win out.' "'Royer dines with my chief, "'and then comes to my house where four people will see him. "'Whitaker from the Admiralty, "'myself, Sir Arthur Drew, and General Winstonley. "'The First Lord is ill and has gone to Sheringham.' At my house he will get a certain document from Whitaker, and after that he will be motored to Portsmouth, where a destroyer will take him to Havre. His journey is too important for the ordinary boat train. He'll never be left unattended for a moment till he's safe on French soil. The same with Whitaker till he meets Royer. That's the best we can do. And it's hard to see how there can be any miscarriage. "'but I don't mind admitting that I'm horribly nervous. "'The murderer of Carolitis will play the deuce "'in the chancelleries of Europe.' "'After breakfast, he asked me if I could drive a car. "'Well, you'll be my chauffeur today "'and wear Hudson's rig. "'You're about his size. "'You have a hand in this business, "'and we're taking no risks. "'These are desperate men against us "'who will not respect the country retreat "'of an overworked official.' When I first came to London, I'd bought a car and amused myself with running about the south of England, so I knew something of the geography. I took Sir Walter to town by the Bath Road and made good going. It was a soft, breathless June morning with a promise of sultriness later, but it was delicious enough swinging through the little towns with their freshly watered streets and past the summer gardens of the Thames Valley. I landed Sir Walter at his house in Queen Anne's Gate punctually by half-past eleven. The butler was coming up by train with the luggage. The first thing he did was to take me round to Scotland Yard. There we saw a prim gentleman with a clean-shaven lawyer's face. "'I brought you the Portland Place murderer,' was Sir Walter's introduction. The reply was a wry smile. "'It would have been a welcome present, Bullivant. This, I presume, is Mr. Richard Hannay, who for some days... "'greatly interested my department.' "'Mr. Hannay will interest it again. "'He has much to tell you, but not today. "'For certain grave reasons his tale must wait for four hours. "'Then, I can promise you, "'you'll be entertained and possibly edified. "'I want you to assure Mr. Hannay "'that he will suffer no further inconvenience.' "'This assurance was promptly given.' "'You can take up your life where you left off,' I was told. "'Your flat, which probably you no longer wish to occupy, "'is waiting for you, and your man is still there. "'As you were never publicly accused, "'we considered that there was no need of a public exculpation. "'But on that, of course, you must please yourself. "'We may want your assistance later on, McGillivray,' "'Sir Walter said, as we left. "'Then he turned me loose.' "'Come and see me tomorrow, Hannay. "'I needn't tell you to keep deadly quiet. "'If I were you, I would go to bed, "'for you must have considerable arrears of sleep to overtake. "'You'd better lie low, "'for if one of your Blackstone friends saw you, "'there might be trouble.' "'I felt curiously at a loose end. "'At first it was very pleasant to be a free man, "'able to go where I wanted without fearing anything. "'I'd only been a month under the ban of the law, "'and that was quite enough for me.' I went to the Savoy and ordered very carefully a good luncheon, and then smoked the best cigar the house could provide. 
but I was still feeling nervous. When I saw anybody look at me in the lounge, I grew shy and wondered if they were thinking about the murder. After that I took a taxi and drove miles away up into North London. I walked back through fields and lines of villas and terraces and then slums and mean streets, and it took me pretty near two hours. All the while my restlessness was growing worse. I felt that great things, tremendous things, were happening, were about to happen, and I, who was the cogwheel of the whole business, was out of it. Royer would be landing at Dover. Sir Walter would be making plans with a few people in England who were in the secret, and somewhere in the darkness the black stone would be working. I felt the sense of danger and impending calamity, and I had the curious feeling, too, that I alone could avert it, alone could grapple with it. But I was out of the game now. How could it be otherwise? It was not likely that cabinet ministers and admiralty lords and generals would admit me to their councils. I actually began to wish that I could run up against one of my three enemies. That would lead to developments. I felt that I wanted enormously to have a vulgar scrap with those gentry, where I could hit out and flatten something. I was rapidly getting into a very bad temper. I didn't feel like going back to my flat. That had to be faced sometime, but as I still had sufficient money, I thought I would put it off till next morning and go to a hotel for the night. My irritation lasted through dinner, which I had at a restaurant in Germain Street. I was no longer hungry and let several courses pass untasted. I drank the best part of a bottle of burgundy, but it did nothing to cheer me. An abominable restlessness had taken possession of me. Here was I, a very ordinary fellow with no particular brains, and yet I was convinced that somehow I was needed to help this business through, that without me it would all go to blazes. I told myself it was sheer, silly conceit that four or five of the cleverest people living— with all the might of the British Empire at their back, had the job in hand. Yet I couldn't be convinced. It seemed as if a voice kept speaking in my ear, telling me to be up and doing, or I would never sleep again. The upshot was that about half-past nine I made up my mind to go to Queen's Anne Gate. Very likely I would not be admitted, but it would ease my conscience to try. I walked down Germain Street, and at the corner of Duke Street passed a group of young men. They were in evening dress, had been dining somewhere, and were going on to a music hall. One of them was Mr. Marmaduke Jopley. He saw me and stopped short. "'By God, the murderer!' he cried. "'Here, you fellows, hold him! That's Hannay, the man who did the Portland Place murder!' He gripped me by the arm, and the others crowded round. I wasn't looking for any trouble, but my ill temper made me play the fool. A policeman came up, and I should have told him the truth, and, if he didn't believe it, demanded to be taken to Scotland Yard, or for that matter to the nearest police station. But a delay at that moment seemed to me unendurable, and the sight of Marmy's imbecile face was more than I could bear. I let out with my left, and had the satisfaction of seeing him measure his length in the gutter, then began an unholy row. They were all on me at once, and the policeman took me in the rear. I got in one or two good blows, for I think, with fair play, I could have licked a lot of them. But the policeman pinned me behind, and one of them got his fingers on my throat. Through a black cloud of rage I heard the officer of the law asking what was the matter, 
and Marmy between his broken teeth, declaring that I was Hannay the murderer. "'Oh, damn it all!' I cried. "'Make the fellow shut up. I advise you to leave me alone, constable. Scotland Yard knows all about me, and you'll get a proper wigging if you interfere with me.' "'You've got to come along of me, young man,' said the policeman. "'I saw you strike that gentleman cruel hard. You began it, too, for he wasn't doing nothing. I seen you. Best go quietly, or I'll have to fix you up.' "'Exasperation and an overwhelming sense "'that at no cost must I delay "'gave me the strength of a bull elephant. "'I fairly wrenched the constable off his feet, "'floored the man who was gripping my collar, "'and set off at my best pace down Duke Street. "'I heard a whistle being blown "'and the rush of men behind me. "'I had a very fair turn of speed, "'and that night I had wings. "'In a jiffy I was in Pall Mall "'and had turned down towards St. James Park. "'I dodged the policeman at the palace gates, "'dived through a press of carriages at the entrance to the mall, "'and was making for the bridge before my pursuers had crossed the roadway. "'In the open ways of the park I put on a spurt. "'Happily there were few people about, and no one tried to stop me. "'I was staking all on getting to Queen Anne's Gate. "'When I entered that quiet thoroughfare it seemed deserted. "'Sir Walter's house was in the narrow part, "'and outside it three or four motor-cars were drawn up. I slackened speed some yards off and walked briskly up to the door. If the butler refused me admission, or if he delayed to open the door, I was done. But he didn't delay. I had scarcely rung before the door opened. I must see Sir Walter, I panted. My business is desperately important. That butler was a great man. Without moving a muscle, he held the door open and then shut it behind me. "'Sir Walter is engaged, sir, and I have orders to admit no one. Perhaps you will wait.' The house was of the old-fashioned kind, with a wide hall and rooms on both sides of it. At the far end was an alcove with a telephone and a couple of chairs, and there the butler offered me a seat. "'See here,' I whispered. "'There's trouble about, and I'm in it. But Sir Walter knows, and I'm working for him. If anyone comes and asks if I'm here—' "'Tell him a lie.' "'He nodded, and presently there was a noise of voices in the street "'and a furious ringing at the bell. "'I never admired a man more than that butler. "'He opened the door, and with a face like a graven image, "'waited to be questioned. "'Then he gave them it. "'He told them whose house it was, and what his orders were, "'and simply froze them off the doorstep. "'I could see it all from my alcove, and it was better than any play.' I hadn't waited long till there came another ring at the bell. The butler made no bones about admitting this new visitor. While he was taking off his coat, I saw who it was. You couldn't open a newspaper or a magazine without seeing that face. The gray beard cut like a spade, the firm fighting mouth, the blunt square nose, and the keen blue eyes. I recognized the first sea lord, the man, they say, that made the new British Navy. He passed my alcove and was ushered into a room at the back of the hall. As the door opened, I could hear the sound of low voices. It shut, and I was left alone again. For twenty minutes I sat there, wondering what I was to do next. I was still perfectly convinced that I was wanted, but when or how, I had no notion. I kept looking at my watch, and as the time crept on to half-past ten, I began to think that the conference must soon end. In a quarter of an hour, Royer should be speeding along the road to Portsmouth. 
Then I heard a bell ring, and the butler appeared. The door of the back room opened, and the first sea lord came out. He walked past me, and in passing he glanced in my direction, and for a second we looked each other in the face. Only for a second, but it was enough to make my heart jump. I had never seen the great man before, and he had never seen me. But in that fraction of time, something sprang into his eyes, and that something was recognition. You can't mistake it. It is a flicker, a spark of light, a minute shade of difference which means one thing and one thing only. It came involuntarily, for in a moment it died, and he passed on. In a maze of wild fancies, I heard the street door close behind him. I picked up the telephone book and looked up the number of his house. We were connected at once, and I heard a servant's voice. "'Is his lordship at home?' I asked. "'His lordship returned half an hour ago,' said the voice, "'and has gone to bed. He is not very well tonight. Will you leave a message, sir?' I rang off and almost tumbled into a chair. My part in this business was not yet ended. It had been a close shave, but I had been in time. Not a moment could be lost, so I marched boldly to the door of that back room and entered without knocking. Five surprised faces looked up from a round table. There was Sir Walter, and Drew, the war minister, whom I knew from his photographs. There was a slim elderly man, who was probably Whitaker, the admiralty official. And there was General Winstonley, conspicuous from the long scar on his forehead. Lastly, there was a short, stout man with an iron-gray mustache and bushy eyebrows, who had been arrested in the middle of a sentence. Sir Walter's face showed surprise and annoyance. "'This is Mr. Henney, of whom I've spoken to you about,' he said apologetically to the company. "'I'm afraid, Henney, this visit is not well-timed.' I was getting back my coolness. "'That remains to be seen, sir,' I said. "'But I think it may be in the nick of time. For God's sake, gentlemen, tell me who went out a minute ago.' "'Lard Aloa,' Sir Walter said, reddening with anger. "'It was not!' I cried. It was his living image, but it was not Lord Aloa. It was someone who recognized me, someone I've seen in the last month. He had scarcely left the doorstep when I rang up Lord Aloa's house and was told he had come in half an hour before and had gone to bed. Who? Who? Someone stammered. The Black Stone, I cried, and I sat down in the chair so recently vacated and looked round at five badly scared gentlemen. Join us next week Sunday night for the last two chapters of The 39 Steps. If you enjoy our show, please share with others and let them know how to subscribe to 1001 Stories for the Road. Thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. I wanted to share our most recent review with you. This one, five stars. Brilliant storytelling. Thank you for the clever and considered reading of some of the best stories of all time. My story walk is now my favorite time of day. How lucky we are to be able to access these classics in their authentic form, but told with such vibrancy and character. I can never go past Sherlock Holmes and very much enjoy the antics of the mischievous Huckleberry Finn. Please keep these great stories coming. That one from Tash, New Zealand. And this one, another fan, five stars. This podcast is truly a great listen. I look forward to every new cast. That one from Danny's Girl 83, Apple Podcast, U.S. 
and five stars. Looking forward to this. I listened to 1001 Heroes, and I'm excited for another show from the host. Down from Trelja, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very much for taking the time to leave your reviews. We appreciate it. Our story resumes next week, Sunday night, 8 p.m. Everybody stay safe, and we'll see you then. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.